Welcome to the Public Morality. December 12th commemorates the birth of one of, if not the most incomparable entertainer of the 20th century, Frank Sinatra. We have not had since and most likely will not have again someone on par with Francis Albert Sinatra, a.k.a. the chairman of the board. He went from being a teen idol, the precursor to Elvis Presley, to movie star, Academy Award winner, to transforming Las Vegas along with his fellow Rat Pat mates into his personal playground. Sinatra systematically created a persona where women wanted him and men wanted to be him. Joining me to discuss the legacy of Sinatra is Noah Griffin, a political aide to some of the most influential elected officials in San Francisco politics, including Dianne Feinstein before she ascended to the Senate. A popular talk show host, Griffin also wrote an influential newspaper column before retiring to his first love, music. Griffin is founder of the Cole Porter Society, whose mission is to preserve, promote, and perpetuate the legacy of songwriter Cole Porter. Noah Griffin, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you. A pleasure to be here. I, I, I want to begin uh, with a question that on the surface may seem obvious, uh, but to Noah Griffin, who is Frank Sinatra? Probably the voice of the 20th century. I think Sammy Davis was probably the, the best entertainer of the 20th century. But if you look at the span of his career and what he was able to accomplish and bring to popular music, I think his voice uh, superseded that of Bing Crosby, uh, a lot of other performers, uh, insofar as the length of his uh, popularity. Uh, going from a smooth uh, voice to a um, uh, a more gritty uh, voice that, that this just lasted and made an impression in the movies, uh, certainly uh, the recording, uh, the chairman of the board. He was a, he was he was an icon. He was an idol. He was someone that whose career lasted and whose impression on the public uh, consciousness. I think was probably greater than any other popular singer. Uh, and I say pop, not pop singer like uh, Michael Jackson, but popular singer and the, and someone who advanced the great American songbook. Well, I mean, you, you sort of touched on it in, in, in that answer, but it's, it's, for me, it's almost as if when uh, just discussing Sinatra, we have to pick a segment because, That's right. <laughs> because the career is so vast. So, so uh, what is there a segment that when you're thinking about Sinatra, is there a segment that really appeals to you in particular? I like the early 50s uh, insofar as the heartbreak with Ava Gardner uh, produced a vulnerability in his voice, uh, a yearning that uh, certainly was not there at the beginning because he was appealing to the Bobby Soxers. Uh, and was not there later when he was chairman of the board. He, he sang with much more authority. But, um, and a lot of people don't know the story, but Sinatra couldn't get arrested in the early 50s before From Here to Eternity. And it was Nat Cole that got him signed at Capitol Records because he went to Glenn Wallace and said, this man's best years are in front of him and got him signed there. And just as his career took off after From Here to Eternity. Um, but 
when you talk about the various stages, uh, his voice was dreamy uh, when he first started off appealing to those Bobby Sockers, but more vulnerable in the early 50s, uh, which made him more appealing to, I think, women at that time, although his his breakup from uh, his his wife certainly didn't appeal to uh, uh, gals that, you know, that thought the marriage was was sacred. But uh, and then later on, he, sp- he sang with much more authority, which gave him another phase of his voice. He thought his voice was uh, not girlish, but but too dreamy. First, he wanted it to have more gravitas to it. And I think certainly smoking and drinking brought that along uh, in the later years, for sure. You know, it's funny because for me, it wasn't that long ago. Someone asked me, well, Byron, why do you like Sinatra so much? Mm-hmm. And I sort of talk about that period you just talked about. And what I did for them, I said, here's, um, it had to be you mm-hmm. when, he's with Tom, when he's with Tommy Dorsey. Yes. I said, now here's here's his version uh, with with Nelson Riddle. Yes. And, and it's, they're very, very different. Same lyrics, but they're very different songs. And I wonder if that's what you were sort of alluding to. Yes, you can hear the the different interpretations uh, of Sinatra as he gets a little bit older and goes back to some of the original songs that he did. Um, my mother used to say, "Don't sing a song unless you can identify with it." Uh, uh, or or it, it's like a twenty two year old trying to sing my way; it just doesn't work. So if you see Frank Sinatra's, if you follow his career and you understand his growth, uh, his understanding of a lyric, his living a lyric all of a sudden it becomes a completely different song. And of course, his his pairing with Nelson Riddle uh, is, is, is iconic. Uh, the two of them really uh, hit it off. And uh, occasionally Frank would even conduct, uh, much to Nelson's chagrin, but he allowed him to, to do that. But I, I think his his growth as a, as a human being and the direction in which his life took uh, brought a completely different sound to his voice over the years. Uh, and his singing with that kind of authority, uh, interpretive appreciation of a lyric uh, and bringing his life experience to it altered the sound uh, as you compare the two, for sure. Well, it, it's it's almost as if, and I, and I guess it, for me and what you're saying, his counterpart in, in, this, in this particular area, to me, female counterpart would be Billie Holiday in that they were in what I define as being in the song. So I always felt that Sinatra was in the song. I said, and I, I always said, I think you read the piece that I wrote, that it didn't matter what mood you're in, that mm-hmm. he had a song that captured that mood. Yeah, he said, no matter what you think of me, I'm I'm very I'm real in, in my singing. I give everything to my song. Um, and that's not an exact quote, but it, it, it gets across what Frank, I think, what Frank was trying to say. And he was very real to his uh, to his craft in that regard. Um, and he was in the moment and you could feel it. You could just absolutely feel it, which separated him from a lot of the singers of his time. And he did admire Billie Holiday completely. Um, and in fact, at the end of her life, uh, you know, she I think she died at 44, 45, something like that. Uh, he, she was obviously a drug addict and needed those drugs to live. And it was a crime in those days. He tried to get those to her where she was in the, in the hospital. But uh, she was someone that he, and that, that, that song to Lady Day is just uh, a, a complete tribute 
uh, in a very sensitive way. Well, you, you sort of touched on this, but I want to be more explicit and come right and, and come back to it. Mm -hmm. When you look at Sinatra's contemporaries, especially in that, that 50s period, this sounds like both you and I really appreciate. I would argue there were a number of male vo vocalists who had a tone and range superior to Sinatra. Mm -hmm. Mel Torme, Nat, oh Nat Cole, Joe Williams, Johnny Hartman. <laughs> But Sinatra stands out. And I mean, first of all, do you see it that way? And if so, why? You know, um, his voice isn't as unique as the others, if you think about it. Um, the Velvet Fog, uh, Mel mm -hmm. Torme. And um, as a matter of fact, if you, if you promoted that by saying the Velvet Fog, he could take all his money and leave. He grew to hate that at the end. Virtuoso performer. And, and Nat Cole... Uh, a silky sound. Uh, there's no question about that. Johnny Hartman, a much more masculine, deep, uh, resonant sound. Um, so, he, but Sinatra was almost, it was almost every man's sound and you could identify with it. He did not like Barbara Streisand. He did not like Johnny Mathis. And I've, I've tried to analyze that. Their voices were completely unique, completely unique. And, uh, Sinatra's voice was not unique. His interpretive ability was unique. His, his as you point out, being in the moment was unique. Um, so I think those were some things that come to mind when I think of the other singers that you mentioned. Uh, he, in his younger career, as you know, he was chasing Bing Crosby, wanted to, to be the next Bing Crosby. And, and he surpassed Bing in many ways. Uh, and sort of Bing's voice was kind of like that. And Perry Como's was kind of like that. You could identify with the with the barber from Pennsylvania who said he would always go back to being a barber if things didn't work out. And uh, so it was more somebody's voice that you could identify with and was not as unique as the other ones, but withstood the test of time. Uh, and that's, that's that's really ironic because you you know you you say he Sinatra wanted to be being Crosby. And we could do a whole musical jazz lineage because Bing Crosby wanted to be Louis Armstrong. So <laughs> that's absolutely right. Uh, and uh, uh, think of Jerry uh, uh, Lewis and uh, uh, Dean Martin wanted to be the Mills Brothers. That's <laughs> he, I'm serious. That's who he admired growing up because they were really cool and laid back, not like the Ink Spots who had that kind of yearning to what they were doing to please. Uh, please like us uh, in the old stool, but the Mills brothers were just there. If you like us, you do. If you don't, you don't. I mean, he was. They were just cool. So yeah, he uh, had a lot of. Uh, it, it's ironic what people wanted to do and wanted to be. I think. I think Bing went to law school for a year or something like that. So, uh, was... you know, again, when you think about Sinatra's career, by the mid. By his mid twenties, mm -hmm. he's on top of the mountain. Yes, in the big band era, he has entree in the film. By his mid thirties, he's in decline. A couple, let's just say, I won't say bad films, but let's just say forgettable films. Uh -huh. He lost his voice. That's right. There were, there were the rumors about organized crime, and as you said, he had a very public extramarital affair with Ava Gardner at a time 
when those things just wasn't done. Right, right. And then and then he gets his second act, which you alluded to that begins with the, from here to eternity. Uh, if you were writing the screenplay for this portion of Sinatra's story, how would Noah Griffin write that? Well, I guess from rags, from rags to riches, from riches to rags and back again, um, very few people get that, uh, that second chance, second and third chance. And I would, I would take a look at the people that advanced his career. I would, Take a look more at the uh, Nat Cole aspect of rediscovering Sinatra in the in the way that uh, he did was able to do before From Here to Eternity. The people that had faith in him later in his career, as you know, he, he toured with uh, with uh, Natalie Cole, um, and at one point his his memory was get so bad that he was on the plane with her and, get, and who is she? Get get her out of this. He was he was kind of going into a, a little bit of dementia. But how people are able to reinvent their lives and the people that helped them along the way that didn't get the credit. And uh, if you read, there are three, three biographies that I know of Nat Cole. You, you, get the, you, you really understand how he was instrumental in helping him get his start again. So I would, I would write the screenplay giving, giving uh, recognition to those who probably don't get enough and don't get it at all. And that call would certainly be at the top of that list. Well, I mean, just to follow up on that, I mean, I mean, the the the, the Capitol Records building when you go in Los Angeles is very iconic. Yes. But, it, but, it, but as you said, at the time that when right when Sinatra signed with Capitol Records, outside of that, he could we, we forget he couldn't catch a cold, let alone that's absolutely right. A record deal. I'm sorry, go ahead. That's absolutely right. I've, I've, Sammy Davis talks in his book about seeing Frank walk with his overcoat in in uh, inclement weather in the winter, and nobody nobody even turned around, nobody recognized him uh, on a wintry avenue, wintry street in in Manhattan. So you're right, he he it, it was he was down and out. But then, then again, you got to give credit to the individual who has the continued belief in himself that he can he can overcome that. And move forward. So you can't totally give credit to to, to others, but there's there's got to be some pilot light that's still on there that can be relit uh, and and have that individual move forward. And I think that's made him the chairman of the board later on when he he'd gone through he'd gone to hell and back. And uh, uh, so it it's the other there, there were people who believed in him, but ultimately he had to believe in himself to be able to overcome the the bad press. With the, with the marriage uh, breakup, uh, the uh, the scene where uh, he wanted to commit suicide uh, because of uh, Ava Gardner, uh, it, it 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 toughened him. What it uh, Nietzsche said that doesn't that which does not kill me makes me stronger, and it certainly did in Frank's case. Well, you you talked about um, that internal drive. You talked about um, the assistance. You give credit to that Cole and deservedly so. I'm also wondering, can would you link Nat Cole's uh, help with Frank with Sinatra's really uh, unapologetic uh, appreciation 
for the influence of African-American artists at a time when that just wasn't done. If you think of someone like, um, I don't want to begrudge him, but if you think of someone like Pat Boone, mm. uh, uh, as opposed to Sinatra, who says this music influences me when when he was when he would tour when he um the like the Count Basie album live at the Sands is mm-hmm. that, that just wasn't that wasn't the norm and his willingness to to use his platform which wasn't a term they used then but use his platform to say no you can't discriminate against my friend. Um, so th- th- is that tied to that? You think with Nat Cole? Well, absolutely. I mean, when you think of uh, of Sammy Davis, uh, mm-hmm. he, he he believed in Sammy. The Will Matson trio. We saw him. He made sure that he uh, was able to uh, stay in, in in Vegas in those places. And and Quincy Jones, uh, whose career he uh, helped further. I mean, it's not that these people weren't talented, but Sinatra brought Count Basie, as you point out. Uh, gave complete credit and and boosted these careers rather than just kind of culturally appropriate like uh, like Pat Boone, whom you mentioned, did. Um, you know the tutti frutti right? uh It it just it wasn't as sincere. It wasn't as uh, identifying uh, and helping the the others whose uh, music he appropriated. But Sinatra actually believed uh, and helped aided these careers and. Uh, and and it, it was vice versa. I mean, they they helped him too. I mean, nobody swung like Count Basie back in the oh. day. Uh, no question about it. And and also Quincy, it showed the range of Quincy's abilities to be able to uh, uh, work with Frank. I, I interviewed Quincy at one point. We did an hour and a half interview. It was supposed to go in a half an hour. It went an hour and a half. And I told what I asked him what it's like. What was it like working with Frank? He was wearing his pinky ring, which Frank had given to him and bequeathed him. He said, "He said he's a great guy, but you better have your stuff together when you work with him." Uh, and and obviously Quincy did. Um, and I never got a chance to uh, to meet with uh, Count Basie, but when we did our show honoring Frank Sinatra at the hundredth anniversary of his birth in San Francisco, um, we did a lot of it based on that Quincy. Uh, that, that, not the Quincy, but but that Basie uh, uh, pairing with with Frank. Uh, but yeah. I, I know we're talking uh, largely uh, in commemoration of, uh, of the 170th birthday of Frank Sinatra, and we're having this conversation. Uh, my guest Noah Griffin, but you said something that I sort of want to digress ever so slightly. You said no one swung like Basie. And I've used those exact words. <laughs> you, I, I literally have. So would you just say more about what you mean by that? Because I, I, I personally agree with you wholeheartedly on that. Well, I sang with the big band for 10 years, Walt Tolleson's big kind of a society band in San Francisco. And a little older than I, and he would cut school in the 1940s and go to the Golden Gate Theater. And his praise of Basie was just unlimited. And when I was old enough to listen to his albums and listen to his pairings with folks like Sinatra, it just hit me. I mean, that the drive that he had, uh, the sparingness uh, of his dun, 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 at the end, the basic conclusion. Uh, they said when he was walking down, uh, the uh, it was in Las Vegas with Frank, they go, there's Frank and Splank, because it's just dun, dun, dun. very sparing, but but very much. Uh, very driven in the arrangements that he did. Uh, so they were 
top notch in my book. Uh, and it just feel it. You could just feel it. So that's, that's, I, I wish I was, uh, around and i was born in 1946 but i wish i was around enough to have got cut school and gone to those uh, concerts to hear them in those early days where, where it was great because you'd you'd have the band play you'd have a movie that the band would come back and it'd go all day long you could sit in your seat all day long and listen so hearing the fellows that were around in those early days give tribute to uh, basically uh, it, it, it kind of expands my appreciation of him now as as a singer when you when you listen to some of those records, uh, mm -hmm. and by the way, it's no coincidence and based on what you just said that on Frank's tombstone, the the words are the best is yet to come. Yes. <laughs> but but do you do you when as you Noah Griffin as a singer, you can you hear the relationship in the music? The the can you hear that respect and that sort of symbiotic relationship in them when they're when they're making those songs? Yes, uh, and, you, and the, the care in which he recorded his song. Sometimes you do it just once, but there was uh, the uh, there was one song that he, he did seventeen different takes on uh, on. Uh, oh gosh, I don't know why it escapes me now, but it'll come to me. And uh, I've got you under my skin, which was also a Cole Porter song. And the uh, trumpet player had no more amateur left. I mean, his, his lips were bleeding uh, when he finished it. But sometimes Frank would do one one take and that was it. And then to keep it fresh. And then sometimes he would be a perfectionist on the 17 different takes. But um, it was a certain credibility, a certain believability that, that made him stick out from uh, many of the other singers that we talked about earlier. Uh, and I think that's, that's what he brings to his uh, his art. That's what he brings to his craft. I I, I do want to talk about one story um, about about Sinatra that I, I think is really important. Um, there is the 1960 presidential campaign. Yes, with Senator John F. Kennedy, who was applying for adjunct membership in the Rat Pack. <laughs> At the same time. Sammy Davis Jr. is about to marry my Britt, uh -huh. and who was the sweetest actress. And interracial relationships just was not done then. That's right. And so the, I, mean, I, th I think in most states, if I'm not mistaken, they were still illegal in most states. Sure, until Loving versus Virginia, yeah. That's 67, yeah. Right. So, so here is the most, because this is 1960, so this is really... This is Frank coming out of that 50s era where his comeback is complete. Mm -hmm. he, I mean, he is the voice, the man, if you will. Right. Willing to stand with his friend, Sammy Davis Jr. And, it, and Joe Kennedy didn't make any bones about the fact that he, that he opposed what Frank was doing. So mm -hmm. it's almost like Frank has a choice here. Do I stand with my friend or do I follow this political ambition fostered by, um, in my words, another adjunct member of the Rat Pack status, Peter Lawford, um, mm. uh, to be inside the White House? But Frank stands with Sammy, and and and, and talk about that if you would. Well, he does, but he doesn't because okay. um, he was Sammy was barred from the uh, inauguration at at the at the inaugural, and it must have hurt him deeply. But I mean, you've got to 
you, you're either going to stand with the president of the United States or you're going to stand with your, your, your buddy and your friend. I mean, it would have taken somebody uh, with a lot of uh, character. And, and you can't say that he didn't support Sammy. I mean, when he married my Brit, nobody else would. Very few people would. But then again, uh, he had a choice to make. And then um, there were a lot of uh, people who were connected that were depending upon uh, uh, Joe, uh, Jack Kennedy getting to the White House. It's, it's, it's supposedly the, the mob helped him in the primaries in West Virginia. They helped him in the general election in uh, Chicago. He only won by one-tenth of one percent. Uh, so he had a choice to make. It's a tough choice, but uh, he made it, and he felt he could come back and help Sammy a little bit later on in his career, which he clearly he did. But it was a political choice to make, uh, and he made it based upon uh, the hierarchy of, uh, of power uh, and, the, and the other people that he was connected with who were also influencing him. So, um, yeah, he was there for, with him during the wedding, but uh, at the inaugural, uh, they, they parted company on that one. And, and that really, I mean, I'm, I, I'm glad you pointed that piece, uh, that, uh, piece out, the inaugural story, but that, that really speaks to something I know that you're also familiar with, is that in my view, politics is neither moral or immoral, it's amoral. Yeah. So it's almost like Frank, you know, in that second part, made an amoral decision. He made a moral decision to stand with his friend, but he made an amoral decision um, with the inauguration. How did, I wonder how you saw that. I, I, that's beautifully put. I couldn't put it any better than that. Uh, uh, politics is what it is. Um, and, uh, and there is a certain amorality to power. I'll put it that way. Um, you have it, you exercise it uh, uh, without any regard to, uh, in many instances, what's right or what's wrong. You can see it today in politics. Um, you know, we follow this uh, man who is, uh, many people just think absolutely amoral and crazy. But uh, it, there's a certain uh, benefit to those people who, the, the reelectability of those people who follow him. And they'll go off a cliff like lemmings if they think that uh, it would benefit them. Uh, and so far it has, but it seemingly is is beginning to uh, uh, to wane somewhat. But uh, I love your amorality uh, parallel because I think it's absolutely true. I, I want to shift this conversation uh, and talk a little bit about your story, which personally I, I find uh, quite compelling. You grew up in San Francisco, correct? I did. My parents uh, moved out here in 1944. They have an interesting story. Um, my mother and father were teaching in Florida where they were paying black teachers 40%, 40, 47% of what they were paying white teachers by law. And uh, my father fought it. Um, he was one of the early presidents of the NAACP, statewide representative of the Florida Black, Florida Black, Florida State. State Teachers Association was the African American Teachers Association, um, and he went to court. He lost in state court. He had taught Thurgood Marshall at Lincoln University early on, and Thurgood helped start the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and said, "Let's throw it out of state court, Noah, and try it under uh, the Fourteenth Amendment in the federal district court." And it took them six years, but they won. But my parents were barred from teaching for life in Florida as a result of winning that lawsuit. So Roy Wilkins, who was uh, field secretary was uh, executive secretary of the NAACP at that time. Asked my dad if he would like a job with the association, uh, setting up the 11 regional states out of San Francisco 
1944. He came to San Francisco and did that um, and was uh, asked to do that in 1956 uh, in Kansas. My mother said, I'm not raising my kids in the South. So he went to Kansas for a year and was missing the family too much and came home. But so I was born in uh, 1946 here. They were married for 15 years uh, and didn't think, uh, my mother didn't think she could bear children. So she went to the doctor in San Francisco and and thought she had a tumor. She was 38 years old. The doctor said, you have a nine month tumor. And that was me. And then my brother came along a year and 11 months later. And it's ironic, my older boys are exactly a year and 11 months apart. My daughter was born two years to the day my mother died. She's very much like my mother in, in her talent uh, and her uh, personality and all. So uh, that's how I happened to be born in San Francisco. Uh, and I was uh, seven years old. My mother had me audition with the San Francisco Boys Chorus. And they uh, were formed in 1948 to sing the boys parts in opera, uh, Carmen Turandot, La Boheme, Boris Gudinov. In fact, I soloed with the opera uh, in 1954. I soloed uh, uh, in, 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 in La Boheme with the first black youngster to do so uh, and continued to sing. We had a group called the, the Kings. Uh, we, before our voices changed, we uh, recorded, uh, uh, we covered Lonesome Town, Ricky Nelson's song that went on a USO recording. Uh, and then later on went off on my own in 1960, auditioning at the Hungry Eye, which was, I guess, the most famous nightclub in San Francisco at the time, and picked up a professional accompanist there. It went on to Fisk University in Nashville, Tennessee, where I sang with the Jubilee Singers, uh, which you may be familiar with. They were the first, they were established in 1871. The school was, Fisk University was established in 1866. By 1871, it was going out of business, but uh, George White, the treasurer, had an idea of taking these youngsters, the, the best singers on the road to see if they could make enough money to save their university. By the time they got to uh, uh, Chicago, uh, they, they gave all the money they'd made up to that point to the survivors of Mrs. O'Leary's fire, October 6, 1871. And when they got to Plymouth Church in uh, Henry Ward Beecher's church in, uh, in Brooklyn, they decided to give up singing uh, the madrigals and the songs that they were doing at the time, they, they decided to sing plantation or songs, uh, spirituals that nobody in the general community outside of the South knew about. And they were so successful, they traveled over to Europe and sang before all the crowned heads of Europe. Uh, Queen Victoria gave them enough money to establish the major building on Fisk campus, which still stands to this day, called Jubilee Hall. And from that time to this, there's always been a Jubilee Singers at, at Fisk University. And I was privileged to be a Jubilee Singer from 1963 to 1967. And last uh, November, the last October 6th, at the 150th anniversary of their taking off to, uh, to sing, to save their school, I was the only Jubilee Singer privileged to be asked back and to represent uh, the school both at the 150th anniversary and I was there at the 100th anniversary. So that was quite an honor. So now um, I formed the uh, Cole Porter Society because uh, I, I, as a retirement career, I wanted to go and sing for a living as I had hoped to do earlier on. But when I was at Fisk, the honors professor said, no, you can't just have a degree in music uh, and then get a, a contract at Columbia Records. Why don't you major in something else and minor in music? So that changed my, the course of my career. I majored in history and wound up going to Harvard Law and spent 45 years in government, politics, and media, 
Um, I was a uh, I, I was a law editor at a publishing company here at the Commerce Clearinghouse. I was a, a talk show host at ABC Radio here. Um, uh, I was administrative aide to Diane Feinstein, a press secretary to Frank Jordan. Did a number of things over that period of time before I retired and, and went back to what it was I originally wanted to do, which was uh, which was singing. So. Forming the Cole Porter Society, that's kind of what I've done uh, for for the last 10 years or so. Uh, and so that's been kind of the arc of uh, arc of my career and uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Had a lot of different kinds of experiences and wouldn't trade them for anything. Although I probably could have uh, done a lot better had I just gone into law and become a partner at a firm somewhere, but wouldn't nearly have the, the kind of uh, experiences that I've had in the, uh, um, the wonderful uh, span of doing the different kinds of uh, things that music has allowed me to do uh, and government politics and media has allowed me to do. So that's kind of a thumbnail sketch of, of, of my background. Thanks for asking. I'm gonna, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna come back to a couple of those uh, political and broadcast things in just a moment, but I want, to, I want to talk about the Cole Porter Society because you can't talk about Cole Porter and not talk about Ella Fitzgerald, or for that oh, matter, yes. Frank Sinatra. So talk about that a little more, if you would. Let me, t- let me talk about Ella. She did the the uh, Great American Songbook and and did a whole a recording of Cole Porter's songs. In that, uh, oddly enough, when you if you, if you went to the old uh, Smithsonian American History Museum, um, they planned to do a six month tribute to Ella Fitzgerald, which turned into a six year tribute. To Ella Fitzgerald, and they had a, a note that was personally signed by Cole Porter, thanking her for doing the Cole Porter songbook. Um, my, when I did my first Cole Porter concert, my wife got 20 different artists doing Cole Porter, and you could throw away every one of them except for Ella Fitzgerald's. Her interpretation of Cole Porter was flawless, um, and she was, she was thanked by him, and certainly uh, the American the History Smithsonian Museum uh, kept that uh, tribute to her for, for for six years, and it was supposed to be six months. So uh, generally, Cole appreciated her interpretation of his uh, music, and certainly the Smithsonian did as well. Uh, you, 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 you mentioned, I didn't know about the, the, the Cole Porter personal note. But I do know, are you familiar with the, uh, what Ira Gershwin said about El Fitzgerald? Are you familiar with that quote? No. Well, Ira Gershwin said, you know, there, there, he, says, there, he said, and I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said there are many, you know, among the many tragedies of George dying so early was that he never heard El Fitzgerald sing our songs. Oh, what a beautiful quote. What a beautiful quote. I have his book on lyrics that I, uh, that I read often. Yeah, she, uh, that's, that's, that's wonderful. Uh, she made their songs come to life, come to life. Uh, and that would have been a wonderful pairing, uh, the two of them. Uh, that's, that's, I, that, I'd never heard that before. Thank you for, yeah, yeah. For that. No, I, I, it's one to me. By the way, did you, you bring to mind the one thing I forgot about that? She was scatting in one different song that I, I, escapes me right now. She did 40 different quotes of different different songs in, in one scat. I mean, <laughs> there, there's the genius of her right there. Genius, mm-hmm. absolutely genius. 
So, so, so let's, 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 let's talk a little bit about you. you I mean, you, 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 you glanced over it modestly. So in my view, but let's talk a little bit about that uh, political career because you were, you mentioned being an aide to, was it Supervisor Diane Feinstein? Or? It, it was Supervisor Feinstein and then <laughs> press secretary to Frank Jordan. And I worked on two presidential campaigns. I, I did the black vote in Northern California for McGovern in 71. And then I did the black vote statewide for Clinton in 96. So when you, I mean, so were you, were you there, uh, uh, were you with uh, supervisor, supervisor Feinstein in 78 uh, in that very tragic day in November? Well, let me tell you about that day in November. Uh, I was, uh, I was supposed to interview George Moscone that day at 11.30, I was on the radio, I was on KYA radio, and I got a call at 13 minutes of 11, I remember looking at the clock, a friend of mine said the mayor's been shot. So I jumped in the news car with the news director and we went to city hall and we saw that whole thing un unfold. I had known uh, Dan White before, um, the circumstances under which um, he shot Moscone were known to me. What happened was Barbara Taylor was a reporter for KCBS radio, and she called Dan White the night before and said, how does it feel not to be reappointed? And he had no idea that he wasn't going to be reappointed. In these in situations like that, you generally the protocol is to call the individual before you tell the press. And so the individual knows what's going to happen. They've got their cover story together. They're not caught off guard. When I worked as a as a uh, as a columnist for the Hearst Examiner here, if ever they were going to do a story that was going to blast somebody, they call them the day before and tell them. It's too much of a shock to see it right there, and that's what happened with uh, with Dan White at going to City Hall. Feinstein was going to retire from politics. She had run and lost for mayor twice. Uh, her husband had died. Um, she was going to get out of politics altogether. And this revitalized her career. And what people don't realize and understand is she still had to be voted in to the office. She wasn't automatically the the, the woman that moved up to uh, to to be to be mayor. Uh, and so what happened was she was sequestered in the Fairmont Hotel uh, until that vote was taken by Ben Swig. Uh, and uh, Ella Hill Hutch was the swing vote. And uh, up until that point, it was thought that Gordon Lau might be voted in as the first Chinese mayor of San Francisco. So Diane only won by one vote. So she had two years of George Moscone's unexpired term, and then another two years, another two, two tenures, uh, another eight years as mayor of San Francisco, leaving with a 72% approval rating. And not knowing what she was going to do initially, she ran for governor and lost and then ran for senator and won. So there's a whole backstory uh, that has never been totally acknowledged about how Diane became the mayor of San Francisco. No, I, I've often told people that that moment you just articulated, that tragedy was sort of the, the phoenix out of the ash pile for the political career of Diane Feinstein, because back then she was sort of, I mean, San Francisco was really, the Board of Supervisors was really becoming a divergent body. Yes. Uh, and she sort of, as I recall, she was sort of in that, for lack of a better word, sort of uh, murky middle 
Would that be correct? Or how, I mean, well, she, you're absolutely right. She always called herself a centrist. She said you you govern from the center. But those of us who are more progressive you know you have to to be a progressive. You have to go to the edges. Uh, she was she's always been a centrist, uh, and that's that's her philosophy. And San Francisco was always more progressive than she. Certainly, Moscone was far more progressive than Diane. Uh, but interestingly enough, uh, the uh, the book by David Talbot, Talbot, Talbot called Season of the Witch said something which I never really thought of until I read the book. He said San Francisco really did not recover from those assassinations until 1982 when they won this, when the, the 49ers won the Super Bowl. And that brought the city back together. And I thought that was an interesting thesis that I agree with, uh, having read it and lived through those times. And but Diane was much more of a centrist. You're, you're very correct on that. You, you, uh, and, and we, and we certainly remember, um, we certainly remember because of the tragedy, uh, Mayor Moscone. We remember, uh, and then Jonestown Mayor, 10 days later. Mayor, yeah. That was, I mean, actually, Georgetown was, was, was Jonestown before or after? Jonestown, I think, was before. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I call like a week yeah. before. Right, uh, 10 days, 10 days, actually. Yeah. yeah and I, I was I, on, the, I was on the air when that happened. It, I, you know, it's funny. Uh, let, let me go. But it wasn't funny, but it's strange. I there was there was a movement to elect supervisors by district and not at large, and there was a meeting at the Queen Ada Arms on Turk between Fillmore and Webster, right in the heart of the black community. And there was only one white man in the room, uh, and I asked a friend of mine, "Who is that?" He said, "That's Jim Jones." I had really not really I hadn't heard much about Jim Jones at that point. Uh, dark glasses and all. So I was actually in his presence. And then when Jonestown went down, Jackie Spear and I had interviewed for a position in Washington, D.C. with Leo Ryan and Jackie Spear the summer before. So that hit me very, very personally when that whole thing went down. But um, and I was on the air and with Quentin Cop, State Senator Quentin Cop, and four bells rang out on the AP machine and went to run to pick that, rip that off and read it. And much to my chagrin, that is what it, that is what had occurred. Um, so it's kind of chilling for me. To, I mean, uh, I mean that is. Uh, I don't know if anyone has written that book, but Ten Days in San Francisco seems like it's ripe for someone to take on. Uh, yeah, they have not. There have been documentaries on that, uh, but uh, I don't think there's been a book on that. And you're right; it could it could very well be one book no i i have listened to congresswoman spear talk about that as i recall she even talked about literally in jonestown feigning death uh, in order to survive it she had been shot and she was on the tarmac wounded gravely wounded yes. but her will to live was strong uh very very strong uh and, and then how did you end up being press secretary for former mayor jordan Interestingly enough, I was. Um, Sorry, no. Let me just throw this in, because, sure. and we talked about politics being immoral. <laughs> yes. Seems to be more of a centrist than your personal politics. Seems absolutely, to that's absolutely right. That's absolutely. But I had a chance to make some history, and I think influence. And there never been a black press secretary up until that point. I was public affairs director at City College under Evan Dobell at the time, and. Uh, there was a Black History Month celebration, and uh, Charlotte Meyer Swig Schultz wound up being her last name. I uh, was was in charge of it. She was director of protocol, 
And she was going to put all these athletes front and center. I said, no, you're not going to do this. They asked me to be a part of it. I said, you're going to do the same. You're going to have the same folks honored in Black history that you would uh, if you were honoring uh, white people. So we got uh, Coinus Enix, who's a thoracic heart surgeon, to honor. We got uh, Dennis DeCoteau, who is the director of the of the orchestra for the San Francisco Ballet. We got Jerry Lange, who was the first uh, uh, African-American uh, a talk show host on television uh, in the country, although just locally here. Uh, so we got a, a wide, and, and we had, uh, of course, Jerry Rice, we had a wide panorama of folks that should have been honored, that they would have honored if they were talking about uh, honoring white people in general. So that was impressive uh, to the mayor. Uh, and then uh, one of his aides said, why don't you see if Noah would be, this is kind of the first good press he had gotten, It'd be interested in being press secretary. And I thought about it for a while and I thought, you know, I can make a contribution here that I otherwise couldn't make being outside of the uh, 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 of City Hall. And so I accepted that position. I stayed for uh, almost three years. And I think we turned the press around a lot for Frank Jordan. And I was able to make some decisions on the inside about black appointees that otherwise would not have been made. So I felt uh, I was able to make a contribution uh, more on the inside than being on the outside. And it's, it's different. I mean, when I was writing columns, I could, and I, you know, after that, I wrote for 20 years for the uh, Marin IJ, you know, he, and now I'm on the, the uh, independent uh, journalist, right? And the independent, good, very good, very good. Yes, the independent journal. And I'm now on the uh, town council in Tiburon, uh, and I've just been elected to vice mayor, and I should be mayor, and I've been able to get some things accomplished uh, there on the inside that I would not have been able to accomplish on the outside, just you know, the good thing about being a columnist, you can point out something, but you don't have to solve it. Uh, when you're on the inside, you have to take a look at these issues and uh, uh, yeah. and actually have a hand in confronting them. Sure. Yeah, that, that, that's uh, that's sort of my common stance. And like, I just write, I just write a column. I, just, I, I'm, I don't have any solutions. Um, <laughs> you're also, but you've also uh, sort of pioneered radio and you were sort of, doing talk radio before talk radio became what it is now. Talk about that also, if you would. Well, it's interesting. It was always big in San Francisco. Um, we had, uh, it was ABC, essentially ABC radio then. And I had been, I had, I'd started off in radio for uh, KFOG, which was an easy listening station. Uh, and before that, I was at WJIB when I was in Boston, which was kind of the counterpart, the Boston East Coast counterpart, came back home, was on KFOG radio when it was all stereo music all the time on KFOG, KFOG at 104.5. KFOG music this morning is brought to you by Philip Biblon, the beautiful station, uh, beautiful uh, bookstore on Maiden Lane and now more KFOG music. So it was back in those days where everybody had was striving to have the same kind of voice. Um, and then I let my license lapse, uh, and they were looking for somebody to do uh, public affairs at KYA radio. Um, and a friend of mine mentioned that to me, and I went in and did the interview and was public affairs director Monday through Friday and did a talk show on Sunday morning. Uh, and then the powers that be said, well, why don't we have you do a, uh, why don't we have you do a two-man show, Mink and Noah? So it was the first interracial duo uh, in America. Uh, we did that for a year uh, here and we, we had a modicum of success. And uh, at the end of that year, I was asked to go to KGO as a talk show host and my partner. I was asked to go as a program director up in uh, Portland radio. 
So that started my talk show hosting career. We were so big in the market that if you came to San Francisco and were an author or anybody that wanted to get on tele, you had to appear on our radio first before you went to television. That's how powerful we were. Uh, and uh, uh, we were well known not only throughout the country, but certainly even better known in San Francisco. We had a tremendous rating. Uh, so that I got a chance to cut my teeth uh, at uh, the top uh, talk show in the country uh, with some really high level uh, talk show hosts uh, from whom I learned a great deal. I took over for Al Collins, uh, who was- uh, Al Jasbo Collins. Oh my God, you have a, <laughs> how do you know all this stuff? <laughs> yeah, Al Jasbo Collins was, uh, was a legend, uh, came to San Francisco and uh, reestablished himself here after a payola scandal in New York and uh, was on KSFO for quite some time, uh, and then moved over to KGO, and uh, was let go because one night the general manager tuned in. Instead of doing talk, he was playing music, which he loved. And so uh, they had me take over for Al. And it was interesting because he was such a legend and so well-loved. Uh, his listeners uh, were kind of boycotting me. And I, I remember uh, the first night I had off, and uh, I was... Uh, going on with my wife and listening to the fellow who's taking off and taking my place that evening. And they're saying, and that guy you have on front, that guy's awful. I just turned around and went back home, but uh, we were able to bring them over after a while. But for the first six months, the, rather than just go it alone, as uh, I had guests on every hour of the night until I felt comfortable enough to be doing it on my own. But uh, good on you for knowing Jasper. You know, when, when, uh, when, uh, before Johnny Carson was uh, asked to take over uh, the show, the, the, the talk show, uh, Al Collins was there for six uh, on, the, on the television. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, um, he was there for six weeks. And and, and I know we we what may seem like a digression, but I think it's really important because throughout all of this, Jack Park, Jack Park, he took over for Jack, Jack Park for six weeks. Yeah, uh, through all of this that we've been talking about about your career. Music n never went away. No, it didn't. Uh, I was continue. I would continue to sing gigs during the forty years in government politics and media. Uh, I sang at the opening of Bart. I sang at the hundredth anniversary of the cable cars. I sang at uh, Lotus Fountain when they were uh, uh, honoring uh, Lotta Crabtree. I continued to sing any opportunity and any chance that I got. Uh, so it, it it wasn't a, a totally dead career for me. Because uh, I just enjoyed it too much, uh, so and the people knew that I sang. Uh, so every time they would uh, honor the uh, the 1906 earthquake, I would sing at Lotus Fountain. Uh, so yeah, I kept it up. I kept, and then with uh, with uh, Walt Tolleson's big band for ten years, I was uh, their major vocalist, which obviously it wasn't a full time career, but it's something that kept me in the and the, also the clubs that I was able to uh, become a part of the family club, uh, the Bohemian Club. Uh, the uh, 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 the press club. I was kind of their vocalist in residence, their university club. Uh, so it kept, it kept the music alive, kept the music in me. So here we are having a conversation basically uh, 107 years after Francis Albert Sinatra was born. Is he still relevant? Oh, yeah. 
the, the article is written to you and uh, the other one is uh, is Sinatra still relevant he, he truly is because he will live forever in the recordings you know the kids are rediscovering vinyl now and uh, they get a much truer sound it seems to me uh, and his recordings and then there's there's the Sinatra station on Sirius seriously Sinatra uh, that uh, you know the, 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 the Nancy Sinatra uh, hosts uh, and, and Frank Jr. until he passed. And they still run some of the programs that Frank Jr. hosted. But uh, people will still be studying him, his approach, his style, his, his phrasing for, for, for years to come. Uh, I was taught when I was uh, studying music, which I did for a number of years, my, my vocal coach told me, listen to female singers, because if you, if you mimic them, nobody's going to say you tried to sound like Ella Fitzgerald. Uh, but uh, for phrasing, uh, you, you must listen to Frank Sinatra, and that will be important as long as there are singers that, to whom a lyric uh, is, is paramount. No, Griffin, I, I can't thank you enough, sir, for lending us your time uh, on the public morality. This has just been a wonderful uh, time in my broadcasting career, and I actually wish we had another hour because I assume we could have no trouble filling it. Thank you, sir. Well, we need you back in San Francisco. We don't know what you're doing in North Carolina, man. You're too much of a San Franciscan. <laughs> the Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at PublicMorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N at PublicMorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Paul McRally on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click Open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Paul McRally at their studios. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.